morning as I read from God's Word, the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation chapter 6, I'll be reading verses 12 through 17, the opening, the loosening of the sixth seal. Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in caves and in rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! And hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you and we ask that you might give to us what you have promised to give us when your word is read and preached. That you would feed us richly out of the bounty that is your word given to the church in every generation. This word laid down by the prophets and the apostles, inspired by the Spirit, so that we, your children, might be fully equipped for every good deed. Equip us, we ask. This morning we pray in your name. Amen. The call to all men is to repent and be baptized. Psalm 2, to kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. All that men need to know How to be saved from the wrath of God has been revealed to them in the clear words and gracious overtures found in Scripture. Now, it befuddles me, as I'm sure it's befuddled you, why when you confront someone in their sins and they see them for what they are, and you say, here is the way out, and they say, no thank you. It is ultimately a work of the Spirit and the life of an individual that brings about repentance. But God, in his mercy and grace, made countless overtures to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to that nation of Israel, to that city of Jerusalem, to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the old covenant, Old Testament people of God. Time and time again, these overtures of warning of promise upon repentance were given to them. And despite all of this, what we find is the reception of the Messiah to be cold and violent and apostate. And instead of crowning him king, not only of Jerusalem, but of the world, they rejected and crucified him. Now we know that by God's own design, 
It was necessary that the Messiah come and suffer for the sins of men. But it did not require rejection. The question for us is this. In light of the unavoidable truth or reality that whether you like it or not, Christ will have dominion and his kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven, what will you do about that? How will you live in light of that? As John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ himself proclaimed, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the same proclamation goes out to you and to me and to the whole world, and that is this. Get into the ark of safety, for the flood of judgment is coming. Now, not a flood of rain, for God himself gave us a promise. The rainbow is ours. We are the rainbow coalition, not the deviants who were judged They did not receive a promise, only judgment. We are those who look to the promises of God and we stake everything upon those promises. We build our lives, we build our houses, we train our children, we go to work, we drive down the road. Everything we do is built upon this mindset, this principle that Christ holds it all in his hand. Now, you may take for granted, unless you came to salvation later in life, you may take for granted that blessing, that perspective, that worldview. But Israel, countless centuries of God's expressions of devotion in the main were rejected by almost the whole nation. What is the consequence for such a rebellion? That is what we find this morning. In the loosening of the sixth seal, we find God's judgment against Israel poured out in the destruction of the city and the temple manifested around 70 AD. That is what we see here. Two points then that I want to make and then I want to connect it to us, not just put it in the past and leave it there, but what is the principle that we can draw for ourselves? The first point Judgment poured out. Judgment poured out. And then secondly, two ways to hide. Two ways to hide. Let's look at this first point. Judgment poured out. In fact, it's really the whole of the scripture here. These verses, 12 through 17, we see the judgment of God poured out upon Jerusalem. And this is apocalyptic language. Now, when you hear the word apocalypse, you always think the end. Or you're thinking the end of everything. But there have been many apocalyptic events throughout the world and throughout time. The universal flood was an apocalyptic event. The destruction of Babylon, of Assyria, of Edom, of Egypt, and even Jerusalem. All of these things are apocalyptic. They are divine expressions of wrath revealed clearly in Scripture so that we might know exactly what those events are. Now, recount with me for a moment that ancient episode in the history of Israel, having languished in Egypt for 400 years, God raised up a deliverer. 
And then he gave to that deliverer an assistant, his own brother, Aaron, and he sent Moses and Aaron to Egypt with this message, let my people go. I can't hear that without thinking the song. And despite the warnings, despite the exhortations to Pharaoh, who was himself of the seed of the serpent, a satanic expression of wicked power on earth, Pharaoh said, no. All the kings of earth might say no. And so what did Yahweh proceed to do in the eyes of every Egyptian and every Israelite? Humiliate their entire religious structure, their entire social structure. God took everything away from Egypt to show them this. I am the true and living God. And so we find things happening in nature. The Nile turning to blood, too many frogs in the land, a swarm of locusts, hail, the sun going black. Why the sun going black? Because Every Egyptian looked to the sun as a deity itself. And then, of course, even the taking of the life of Pharaoh's firstborn child, when God, through the angel of death, passed over the land of Egypt. And all those who hid beneath the bloodstained lintel were saved from the wrath of God, and all those who did not were not spared. This is how God deals with every human on earth. These are the contours that teach us how we are to receive the Messiah. What we find being described here is the language of decreation. I'll give you a, perhaps an example a little bit closer to home. When you join a church, you make a profession of faith. And that session and that body hear your profession, and they welcome you into the communion of the church. And you are regarded as a member of the visible church, as a true member of Christ's body. Now, what happens when you begin to believe or act in a way that is contrary to Scripture? You are warned, don't do this, don't believe this, don't teach this. And if you do not heed those warnings, you arrive to the conclusion or to the end of the matter that is excommunication. Now, you may not be familiar with excommunication because most churches don't do excommunication, right? Because the first catechism question in most evangelicals' catechism is, what is God? God is nice. Now, God is a God of infinite righteousness, and we come to him on his terms. Now, excommunication is, well, communion, Ex, ex, communion. It is to cut off fellowship. It is undoing what was done previously. This decreational language that we find throughout the scriptures is found in many other places. And those are the places that we ought to turn to to understand what is happening here. This is not a literal description of things that were or will, will take place. This is apocalyptic language to describe divine action and interaction in the world that takes the place of cataclysmic judgment. Do you understand? 
This shaking, as the writer of Hebrews says, God shakes the things of earth so that that which cannot be shaken may endure, gives us understanding as to how we are to interpret apocalyptic language. You and I, just to put it in plain speech, ought to not look for the moon to become like blood. Those are the books that have been written to sell books at the Christian bookstore. Those are misinterpretations of Scripture. And here is why. Because Revelation doesn't stand alone in the canon of Scripture. It is to be read in light of other things. And when we find other apocalyptic literature in Scripture, like Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, Ezekiel 32, Joel 2, Amos 8, Matthew 24, and many, many, many other places, what happens as a result of it? And to then interpret it accordingly. So what we are finding is a holistic, complete, catastrophic, apocalyptic judgment being poured out upon those whom Christ said it would come. Now in Isaiah 13, it's Babylon. There is tumult. It's the same language. But it is done through whom? The Persian Empire. Babylon was destroyed by another nation. And the description, the poetic description of the way in which that would happen or the prophetic way in which it would happen is by talking about nature being unloosed, sort of the fiber of creation itself being loosened. And then in Isaiah 34, the sons of Esau, the nation of Edom, there is the creational testimony of God's wrath, using the same language. In Ezekiel 32, it's Egypt. There is darkness and death. These, this similar words, this similar language is used to describe divine judgment upon a people who reject God's words. But it isn't just the nations. In First and Second Samuel, God used David the great king of Israel, to bring destruction to the nation of Philistia, the Philistines. Now concerning Israel, we see in Joel 2, prophecies of their destruction. Amos 8, the northern kingdom, which was taken into captivity by Assyria. And then Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, later by Babylon. What I want us to understand is this. The way in which God's judgment is related to Revelation Children of the covenant, listen to me. You have great benefit and blessing by hearing, not just from your pastor, but from your parents, the word of God and how you apply it to your life. And if you are raised up in that environment, God expects great things of you because he has poured into you providentially despite the fact that your parents are not perfect, which itself is a great illustration of his mercy, isn't it? It would be worse if your parents were perfect because you're not perfect. <laughs> it would be impossible if your father was perfect or your mother was perfect. And if they're pretending to be perfect, they're doing you a great disservice. But what they must do is they have to say, you must honor the Lord. And the way that you do that, Psalm 2 
is you kiss the sun. Now, the language of kissing the sun is get into the peace treaty. Be on the right side of Christ. Embrace him. Because if you do not, there is no salvation afforded to those who reject God's son. And so, children, what your parents are trying to do is to get you to see that the only way of salvation is through Christ Jesus. And if after a thousand of those reminders, you say no, how great is the judgment for you? The way that this is manifested in just regular family life is when your parents say, I've asked you three times to do this. And what normally happens? The judgment gets more severe. First, it's a, it's a look, right? And the look is meant to be, you need to know that the path you're walking down is dangerous. And then you refuse, or you're like, I don't see the look. And then there is perhaps harder words. And you still do not heed. And then what comes next? Well, that's up for parents to decide individually. <laughs> I know what I needed. Israel time and time again put God to the test in all the wrong ways. They would not heed his words. They would not heed his discipline. There are moments in the Old Testament where Israel looked exactly like the nations. There was no distinction whatsoever. They were as wicked and wretched as the world. They were killing their own children in the arms of pagan gods. They were committing adultery. They were not tithing. They were not keeping the Sabbath holy. The church didn't look a lot different from the world. Now, the way the church often makes excuses for this is, well, we're trying to reach the world. With what? What do you have to offer the world if you don't look different from the world? Well, I don't want to offend. Well, then maybe you should read Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. Because the danger of you not offending your neighbor with the gospel is that God will come in judgment against your neighbor because they've never heard or they don't know or God hasn't used you as a means of their repentance. Now, here is what we find in Revelation chapter 6. Christ, in his first act upon the throne, his first act upon the throne is to bring an end to the Old Testament way of thinking and believing and acting. And what had happened was this. Israel, in rejecting Christ, clung to the temple and to the promises of the Old Testament, but without their fulfillment. They rejected the final word, the, the culminating principle, the, the culminating word of the Father to men, here is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And when you hear that, you should go, we need to follow this man. How much greater the judgment? Because it isn't three warnings. It's countless warnings in Scripture. And the final nail in the coffin of this man-centered Christ-rejecting religion that continues to this day is they killed the true temple. And even to this day, every Jew you meet that is a good Jew 
longs for the rebuilding of the temple and the reoffering of sacrifices. It's the same thing that dispensationalists are waiting for, which is kind of ironic. This is not our hope. The temple is destroyed, and you know what? That's good. Of course, it begs the question for us, are there temples that we erect in our hearts that we use to distract us from the true temple, Jesus Christ? Areas of unbelief, idolatry? But hear this language. You see the language of an earthquake, black like sackcloth of hair, deep black, thick black, black so black that it has texture. Moon becomes like blood, the stars of heaven falling to the earth. The fig tree drops its late figs. It's shaken by a mighty wind. All of this symbolic language is used to describe his disfavor, his judgment upon Israel. These are the people of whom Christ says, I carried you in my bosom through the wilderness. And yet we see this great judgment. Why? Because they were as wicked as the nations. In fact, even more. How great your wickedness must be. How great your blindness and darkness of heart to have been reared in the truth only to say, no, I don't want it. There is no greater sinner in the world than a Christian who sins. Because you and I know better. There is no more offensive conduct to God than when his children sin against him. And they do so in the eyes of the world. And they give permission to the world from scripture. And exercising authority. So what we find is the reason for the great judgment of God upon the nation of Israel. Christ is bringing an end to these people. Now, there is a promise, Romans 11, of hope, that the Jews will one day be brought back to Christ. You know how they will do it? Because the Protestants, the Christians, whomever confesses Christ and the sufficiency of whatever that makes you, a gospel whole counsel of God believer In our taking dominion of the earth and in building a kingdom, they will come to know Christ. But here we find extraordinary judgment poured out. By the end of the siege of Jerusalem, there were well over one million casualties of non-combatant Jews in the city of Jerusalem because it happened at Passover. Rome surrounded that city. They sacked that city And not only that, but 95,000 Jews were taken into slavery. This is all according to the history writings of Josephus, one of the earliest writers of history of this time. A tragic, cataclysmic expression of divine judgment. Second point, two ways to hide. In light of the judgment that is coming, we see the response, and it begins in verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, 
the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Every person in the land could see the unmistakable wrath of God. Every Jew in that city saw what was coming. Titus leading his pagan hordes into the holy city of God. But holy why? Holy no longer. Because the city of Jerusalem no longer represented the pinnacle of God's covenant promises. But it housed those who had crucified the Lord of glory. What they did to the temple when Christ overturns the tables and he says, you have made my house of worship a house of a den of thieves. They did it to the whole city. The whole covenant was a covenant of theft and robbery. And when God said to Abraham, I will bless you so that you might be a blessing to the nations. The Jews had turned inward and arrogant and prideful all while rejecting the promises of God's salvation. This is how it always goes. So some have referred to Presbyterians as the frozen chosen. What they mean by that is this. There's not a lot of charisma among Presbyterians. Now, I have not found that to be true. I've known a lot of nerdy Presbyterians... But the greatest Presbyterians I've ever met are the most vivacious, scripture-believing, faithful, pious people I've ever met. And the longer I live, what I see is this. If you live in light of the word of God, it makes you a certain kind of person. You do not disregard two things. The call to be holy and the call to bear witness. Israel, by rejecting the call to be holy, also rejected the call to being witnesses. If you are filled with the word of God, guess what that makes you? Light. Light. It makes you a light on a table. And so what Israel had done is because they had lost their first love. They no longer loved the nations and sought to bring them in. But they created a cold, dead, formal, man-centered religion that did not seek to exemplify and radiate with the grace of God, but rather, I'm righteous and you're not. You stay out. It had become a club for the spiritually dead. And so as God is bringing judgment or would bring judgment, this is written before the fall of Jerusalem, he is speaking of an event that will be unmistakable as to what is happening and that there will be no escape. Now, many do not see it, right? Many did not see this sack of Jerusalem, this killing of so many as divine wrath, which is why we have Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, so that we might understand it, so that we might know how God operates in the world. And that Israel, the covenant people of God for millennia, 
had rejected time and again the warnings and the offers of salvation. John 1, verse 10, he, that is the word, Christ, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. God was tearing down in a visible way those high places in the hearts of his people who had become idolaters. Do you know what God will do to your idols? Do you know? Do you know what God calls you to do to your idols? To grind them to dust and to never speak their names again. To flee from them. Because those who worship idols become like idols. Israel became like the nations, and so they became like the nations. There is but one nation that will endure, and that is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And wherever his glory and honor are promoted, that will endure. Judgment comes from the Lord. This isn't just global political conflict. Rome versus Israel. But here it is clearly revealed that Rome was used by God as Persia was, as Babylon, as Assyria, as Egypt. Of all of those nations, God moves them in his sovereign will in such a way as to create and promote fear in the hearts of his people. Let me give you another example. COVID. Are y'all familiar with COVID? It's something that happened two years ago. It happened two years ago, and we forget things so quickly now. I just want to make sure we all remember. COVID, in God's providence, for the church, ought to be a wake-up call in this way. We are not as well-respected in the world as we think. And the reason why we were well-respected in this nation for so long is because we were not ornery enough. We did not take a stand. We allowed Roe v. Wade and Obergefell to continue without much of a stink. And so what we have done is we have said, let's carve out a place for ourselves where we can worship in truth, thinking that this truce with the world that comes in the form of a constitution, which is a great constitution, will save us. And what we realized is this. That stuff doesn't last. Rome was a republic for a little while until the Ides of March. One of our sons has been memorizing the assassination. Et tu, Brute? Et tu, Washington? Yes. Why? Because all the powers of earth, if they are not allied to Christ, are by definition contra Christ. They must be allied to or at least seeking to serve and honor the Lord. And so when we see this thing come into our land and disrupt us, we shouldn't say this. This is a political problem. No, no, no. The question we ought to ask ourselves when we see judgment is, what ought the church do? What is Christ trying to tell us? And what he's trying to tell us is this. Don't take for granted that the doors are open. 
Don't take for granted the assembly of believers. Don't take for granted any of these extraordinary gifts and let these gifts of God lead you to a a false sense of righteousness and security. At this time in Jerusalem in 70 AD, there was not a safe person in that city because it was God himself through Rome who was coming against that city. And he did so because of the wholesale rejection of his mercy. And we ought not think ourselves above this as well. When we look at Revelation chapter 6, when we look at even the things that we've seen in our life, the question for us is, why is God getting my attention like this? What must I do? How should I live in light of this hard providence? Because the question should always be, Lord, how am I to be reformed? How are you to take greater lordship of my life? Rome was an instrument in the Lord's hand to bring judgment upon those who had rejected him time and time and time again. And so they cried out and they said, let's hide. Well, where are you going to go And I want you to understand this. What separates the church from the world is where we go to hide. And that is why the event of Egypt is so helpful for us here. That if you wish to survive God's wrath, you must get beneath the blood-stained lintel. You must make peace with the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Otherwise, there can only be judgment. A righteous God cannot establish a righteous kingdom and for any to be unrighteous. And how does the gospel present to us the way of righteousness? To flee to the cross that you might be saved. The great and the small are all small before the Lord and none can hide from him. What do they say? And said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. See, this is what natural man does. This is what wicked men do. They seek safety in things that cannot provide safety. Have you seen this happen? I'm not speaking in metaphors. And I think we all understand We will always live among a people who think that they can be safe even in the face of judgment apart from the mercy of God. And you know, it creates in the heart of an individual an incredibly disparate condition. I mean, people lost their minds over the past two years. Why? Because they didn't feel safe. And you still see people driving around, walking around, thinking, if I just put this thing over my face, I'm going to be safe. And I'm like, from what? And for how long? And to whom do you flee for safety? And whose message of safety are you believing? 
Because the world always seeks to make the same promises. Every religion always seeks to make the same promises. But every single one of those promises, due to the fact that they are false religions, always depends upon the resolution in men's hearts and not the grace offered to them at Calvary. Here, these men are saying, let us clothe ourselves in nature. They say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide. I mean, talk about a desperate condition. Let's go into the caves. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 139? Where shall I go to flee from your presence? Shall I go down to the grave itself? Shall I go into the sea? Shall I go into the air? Where can I go? Nowhere. The judgment of God is complete, but the mercy of God is extended even to those who dwell in caves. And what we are called to do is to go into those places and we are called to say, you're not going to be safe there. Here's the ark. Christ himself. There is but one way to hide from the judgment and wrath that is to come. It is to get inside, to enter through the door that is Christ Jesus, and in him find safety. Let's pray.